every single word. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I wish more of you were here in person, but welcome to those of you who are here in person. It's good to be with you. Um, and to you who are joining us online, um, I want to pray for us as we begin. Um, Father, we just want to thank you so much um, for your word. Um, Lord, we thank you that you speak to us through your word, that you, by your spirit, um, impress the truths of who you are and, and what you want us to understand on our hearts. And Father, we want to pray that this morning these truths would be made really clear to us. I pray that wherever it is that we are listening from, um, whether we're even listening at a different time to right now, Lord, would you, by your spirit, speak to us, open and soften our hearts. And God, I pray that as we hear you, we will obey you and make those changes that you are asking us to make, to accept those challenges that you are asking us to move in. Um, Father, we pray that you would help us to listen and you would help us to be faithful children to you. In your name, amen. Okay. Now, I don't know what is, why is it doing this? My screen isn't working. It's very sad. It's a theme. This happened last week to Edwin. I can't scroll. It's so weird. Sorry. I'm going to have to do things a little differently because my touch screen is not touching. So we are beginning a series in Genesis um, and we are going to be moving through this um, Genesis 1 to 37 through most of this year uh, with a couple of breaks. Now Genesis uh, is probably one of the easiest books to find in your Bible. It's the first one, um, so it's right at the beginning. And in the incredible providence of God, it begins with the words, in the beginning, so you know exactly where you are uh, in the book and in actually the story of the Bible. So Genesis is um, at the beginning of a set of writings called the Pentateuch. Um, and the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books. Um, the Bible tells us that these books were written by Moses, and it was probably written something like 4,000 years ago, um, around the time that the Israelites were being led out of slavery in Egypt um, and entering into the land that had been promised to them by God. So Moses wrote these books to help Israel know and understand and remember who they are so that they could be faithful to God as they entered a new life amongst new people in a different land. Um, now, there were people who had been in slavery in Egypt for many years, for the vast majority of them, slavery was the only state of life that they knew. They'd been beaten down and they'd been oppressed. So for these people, their identity was slave. But God gives them a new identity. They are free as his people, as his chosen and beloved people. 
And they didn't know, they didn't understand what an incredible privilege it was to be one of God's chosen people. And they didn't know what their responsibilities were as his chosen people. And so these five books help them to understand what that means to be God's people. So why would a book written for Israelites 4,000 years ago be relevant for us still today? As the church, we are also God's chosen people. Israel is our spiritual ancestor. We share this common beginning. It's actually impossible to have a deep understanding of our faith without understanding the history of Israel. The apostles, the authors of the New Testament, Jesus himself were deeply embedded in this rich history that we find in the Old Testament. And Jesus tells us in Matthew that he came to fulfill every word that was written in the Old Testament. He was its fulfillment. He was its culmination. He was what the whole thing was pointing to. Now, that means that in order to really understand who Jesus is and what he has done, we need to understand what the Old Testament says. So Genesis is our origin story. In it, we find the beginnings of the universe, humanity, sin, salvation, grace, the promises of God. It's the seedbed of our faith. And there are going to be all of these themes that, that start in Genesis that we're going to find as we move through the whole story of Scripture. It orients us, right, to understand why the world is the way that it is. What is our place in that world? And where is this whole thing going? And then most importantly, in Genesis, we begin to understand who God is um, how he relates to the world and how he relates to us. We see the beginnings of God's plans and promises. Now, the overall structure of the book can be divided into two, right? We have the first 11 chapters um, that's sometimes called the primeval history, and that's about the world as a whole, about humanity altogether. And then we have chapters 12 to 50, which zoom in, on Abraham and his descendants, one family that will um, be the, the ones who carry the promise of God in a special way and who become the people of Israel. They are actually the focus of the rest of the Old Testament. Now, what we see over and over and over again in this whole book of Genesis is God's faithful action and humanity's unfaithful response. We see God give life over and over again, and we see humanity choose death. We see God's grace again and again as he comes back and continues to interact with and respond to people who keep making choices that lead to death. What we see in every page is the heart of God who is love and who has always been love, and who always will be. Now, as we move through Genesis, we've got to address a couple of things up front. 
probably particularly in, in the first 11 chapters, we're going to have questions because we come at this um, from a different cultural worldview, even language, time. We're in a very different place to the person who wrote it and the people who initially um, were reading it or listening to it. And it's totally understandable that we are going to bring these the questions that we have and the understanding that we have to this, to, to this book. But we do need to remember that it was initially written by and for ancient Israel. There's a significant difference in language and culture and worldview. Now, because Scripture is God-breathed, and because God has worked in and through the biblical authors to write what was intended to us, we can come to understand God's truths in this by His Spirit. But maybe something we don't like to hear is that it does take work, okay? This is something that we need to work at to understand. Um, and that's, that's actually part of what it, what it means to grow deeper in our understanding of who God is. We need to strive for understanding. So God uses this, this person and these people with their particular language and time and culture and place to speak his truths to us. So for us who come at this text with a bunch of questions and thoughts and trying to make sense of the things that we hear around the place, we're bringing these questions to a text that the author, the initial human author himself and those people never had. They didn't intend for these questions to be answered necessarily by what they wrote. But it's totally fine and encouraged to ask questions, to seek answers, to find understanding and truth because all truth in the end is God's truth. So we don't need to be afraid that God is going to be proved wrong and the whole thing is going to come unraveled. As we seek truth, we, we, we don't need to feel that we're going to undermine somehow who God is or what he has done or what he has given us in his word. So ask the questions that you have. So in our sermons, though, mostly we are going to be spending time unpacking the themes and concerns that are directly addressed by the passages that we're looking at. So if you do have questions um, that we don't tackle, please come and talk to us. Send an email, send a text message. Um, if you want to, um, like, click the prayer link in the chat box, um, you can. But just be aware that we probably, if you, if you go through the chat box, we're probably not going to be able to give you a full answer in that space. Um, so I would direct you to, to try and have a fuller conversation about this um, with us. Now, this morning, we are looking at the creation account. And as we do that, I have to address the elephant in the room, um, that this text has come under a lot of scrutiny and 
derision. It's one of the reasons that people give for not being able to take the Bible or Christianity seriously. So I'm talking, of course, about, you know, what we do with evolutionary theory, the Big Bang, the age of the earth, and all of those related issues. Now, I'm not going to directly address those things today because this is an example of the types of questions that the text is not asking or answering. It's, it's just really not trying to deal with that. What we are asking the text to be when we come at it with these questions is something more scientific in our understanding, a modern scientific understanding of you know, trying to find answers to the, the how of things happening. But science and the Bible are trying to do two different things. And when we rightly understand what both are trying to do, they don't come into conflict. So let me explain. What we need to grapple with here is something that we probably take for granted in regular life. And that is that there are different types of explanations for the same thing that can be equally true and coexist together very comfortably. So I'm going to quote from somebody who is much smarter than I am. Um, his name's John Lennox, and he's got a lot of good stuff if you want to Google him and have a look. He's a Christian and a professor at Oxford of mathematics. But he says this. He says, think of boiling water. Why is it boiling? Well, because heat has been conducted through the base of the kettle and agitating the molecules of water, and the water is boiling. That's one scientific explanation. But there's another kind of explanation, and that is that the water is boiling because I'd like a cup of tea. Now, anybody, even children, can see that both of those explanations are valid and that they don't conflict with each other. They don't compete. They are complementary, and they are both necessary to understand fully why that water is boiling. So that the scientific explanation with the heat and the molecules does not conflict with what is um, called the, the agent explanation, so that I want a cup of tea. They're both true at the same time and in different ways. Now, as we look at the creation account in Genesis, we do need to take the Bible seriously. Please don't understand from this that I'm saying we can, we can just do whatever we like with what the Bible says. But we need to work at understanding what the Bible is trying to tell us. There are guardrails as we, as we seek truth, as we seek to try and find what it is, how, how these two different explanations, um, one that science um, is proposing at this time and what the biblical text is saying, there, we, we want to work them together to try and work out how, how we kind of come to a conclusion at this time about what is true. But there are guardrails for understanding this. The first is that God is the agent of creation, so that he is the one who began it and saw it through. He brought it about. Everything was created by God and through his power and by his plans and purposes. We cannot let go of that. The second is that human beings are a special creation of God. 
made male and female by God and in his image. We cannot let go of these two truths. But there is scope amongst faithful Christians to come to different conclusions about the mechanisms of creation. And our approach to each other should be one of humility and grace. Because let's face it, science is, is a moving beast. It constantly changes. And the understanding that we have today was not what they thought 100 years ago and is not going to be what they think in 100 years' time. So let's come at it with with grace and humility to talk to each other about what it is that we understand and want to understand. And actually, you know, the very science itself and the way that it grows and changes, the way that our minds work, is part of the wonder of the way that God created us. Okay, now, I'm sorry it has taken a while to come to the actual text, but here we are. And this is such a rich text that I can't cover everything, obviously, in in this short time that we have. But I will point you to a Bible study that we are planning to run um, as the year progresses. So keep an eye out for that. So firstly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Before the beginning, there was God, existing in perfect harmony as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is eternal with no beginning and no end. And time, the marking of minutes and weeks and years, is meaningless in eternity. It is only meaningful to speak of a beginning when God created something else. He marked the beginning. Now, in the understanding of the ancient Near East, the formless, the empty, the the dark, the deep, the water, all point to a space that is uninhabitable. It is not fit for any purpose. It is a place of chaos. It is a place of of fear. It is a void. And there, in that dark and formless void, the Spirit of God hovered. Now, as we move through the story of the Bible, we will see how that same Spirit of God hovers over the floodwaters um, with, with Noah's Ark as Israel crosses the Red Sea, when Jesus is conceived, and finally at Pentecost, when the Spirit hovers, life is coming. And to bring about that life, to make it possible, God will have to bring about order. He's going to have to do something to make the place fit for purpose, to separate to create divisions around those things that actually make life impossible. So the darkness, he hems in with light. The waters, he confines above and below. The land is given form and separated from the seas. 
And as God gives form to the heavens, to the skies, to the seas, to the land, he fills them. He fills the heavens with sun, moon, and stars. He sets them to govern the day and the night and the seasons. He fills the seas with aquatic life. He fills the skies with birds. He causes vegetation to come forth from the earth and animals to fill that earth. And finally, into what he has formed and filled, he creates mankind, male and female, made in the image of God and given rule and dominion over the fish and the birds and the animals. This morning, we're going to see how God begins, how he proceeds, and how he ends in this creation account. Now, God begins each section, each act of creation by speaking. His speech is not about telling us what's going to happen next. His speech is powerful and accomplishes in itself what God intends. So God says, let there be light, and there was light. Now, have your parents ever asked you to clean your room? (laughs) Or if you're a parent, have you asked somebody else to clean their room? Now, when I lived with my parents, I've got to admit that when they asked me to clean my room, I sort of went, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm," and I just kind of mosey on away and probably do something else. My response which was vaguely positive, usually didn't result in anything happening. And that was because, not because I didn't have the ability to clean my room. I had the power to do it, but did not have the desire to do it. So it didn't happen. Now imagine then a different scenario where I promised my parents that I'm going to be home for dinner tonight at 6 But there was this huge storm and something went wrong with the trains and the roads got all jammed up. And even though I did everything in my power to get home at the time that I said, I couldn't do it. I had the desire, but not the power to affect what I had said. There are two aspects to a word coming to pass, the power and the desire. And when God speaks, he has both the power and the desire to bring about what he says. And so it is done. His words carry the weight of his character. And it is such a glorious weight that the whole of creation comes into being by the power of his word. Now, we are at the end of January. And I know for many of us, January is one of those months that tends to be pretty sloppy. We're on holiday. Lots of people are. The weather tends to be good. You have people who want to do stuff. Um, It's not generally a great month for discipline. I don't It's it's not usually a great month for discipline for me. 
And this January has probably been particularly disrupted by different things that have been happening. You know, maybe you've had to randomly isolate and all your, like, you know, or you had to change plans because somebody else had to, like, you know, there's just all over the place. And maybe your time with God has gotten patchy, even non-existent. Maybe your prayer life feels really dry. Here is where I want to say, make a change. Make a change. Put it in your calendar. Make a plan. Set a time. Whether you're in a situation where your days and weeks are empty, you've just got time coming out of your ears, or you're in a situation where everything, like you've got every minute of every day scheduled and booked in, or somewhere in between, set a time. To spend time allowing God's word to shape you. Pick a new Devo book. Pick what book of the Bible you're going to read. Have it visible. Put it beside your bed. Clear view. Begin. Let the spirit of God hover over you and bring life through his word. Let the weight of God's word shape you. Now, God begins by speaking, and he continues by preparing. There's a plan. There's order. There's purpose. There's not a randomness or the idea that something happened by accident. God proceeds from one stage to the next, first forming and then filling the creation. There is care in God's plan. Think of how new parents might be excited um, to prepare for a baby. Um, my sister is going through that now, and there seems to be this endless list of things that she can and can't eat or do, or like, you know, there's just all this stuff that she needs to prepare. There's a room to set up and to decorate and furnish. And so she's looking for what's the best, you know, item to purchase and how to do things. Um, she's reading books. She's asking for opinions. She's making sure she makes all the right medical appointments. And all this because she and her husband are preparing for this new life to enter the world. Because they care about what sort of life, as far as they can control it, they are bringing that life into. Now, in an infinitely greater way, God's careful and even extravagant, purposefully planned creation shows the incredible love and care and concern that he has for us. One of the terrible losses of atheism is that purposeful care and planning. You know, the, the thought that we exist only because a bunch of random things happened and that there isn't really, a, there's no meaning or purpose attached to that. And yet, within us, we have this drive to find meaning and purpose and significance. We long for our existence to mean something. We long for our lives to matter. 
You see, the Bible gives us an answer that an intellectually honest atheist struggles to match. The Bible tells us that our lives matter and have purpose and significance because we are the beloved creation of God, made in his image, formed by him to be active agents in the world, his active agents. And our lives are significant. We are indescribably precious to God. And he has purposed and planned the lives that we have now. Where we are, the way that he has formed us, even the different experiences that we have, the gifts that we have, all of it is planned and purposed by God. You see, from nothing in creation, God brought forth something. From darkness, God brought forth light. From chaos, God brought forth order. From emptiness, God brought forth fruitfulness. You see, maybe you're in a place now where you're feeling discouraged. You don't know where your life is going. You don't know how to plan your life. There's just It just feels like things are all over the place and things are going wrong. Maybe you're feeling just powerless, that you lack the ability to make the changes that, that you think you might want to make. Maybe you feel weak, less than enough. Let this word of God shape you. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. You see, the God of all creation, who so lovingly brought it forth, is recreating us as we look upon the glorious face of Christ. And that verse continues, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. You see, the power for life comes totally from God. The power to, to change, to create, the, the power that creates us is from God, not from us. But it is not a blunt power that just smashes things as it comes through. It is with infinite love and care that God shapes us and upholds us. In the way that he carefully carried out his plan in creation, he also carefully carries out his plan for us in our lives. Now, time seems, to me anyway, to move very quickly. And it's easy to become essentially stuck in the same pattern of thinking or way of living for much longer than you would ever have intended. Maybe you thought, I'm just going to binge this for a day and then tomorrow it will be different. But it's been a week. It's been a month. And you haven't 
gone and made that change and stopped watching or stopped playing or stopped whatever it is. And you keep promising yourself that tomorrow you will make the change. Tomorrow you will have that conversation. Tomorrow you will make a start. Now sometimes that's laziness. Sometimes it's a feeling of powerlessness. But it can feel comfortable, right, to stay in the same place, to stay thinking the same way, even if the, what you're doing is not ideal. You know it's not ideal. It's not right. Because movement takes energy. Change requires commitment. New things require learning and growing. But here is what God says. We don't need to be stuck or feel like we need to muster up all the energy ourselves or feel like we, we ourselves need to have everything planned out exactly and bring those plans to fruition. Because our lives matter to God, that God who is over all of creation is over all of these things that we want to make changes to in our lives. He is on our side and he wants us to grow and to change into the image of Christ. And his plans and purposes for us are perfect and good. He will not crush us or leave us to fend for ourselves. He will not leave us or forsake us. The devil wants us to feel trapped. Yeah. He wants us to feel as though we can't make a change that we're not good enough to make a change, that we don't have the power to make a change, that this is as good as it gets. But it's a lie. Because as we walk with God, there is no trap. There is nothing stopping us. Because God is on our side. The same God who created everything in creation. Through his power, through his character, we can trust that he is bringing about his plans and purposes in our lives. And so we can take those steps with him without fear to move in the way that he is asking us to move. So God speaks, God prepares, and now we see how God finishes. He rests. Now, later on in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to instruct Israel about Sabbath. But this is where we first see it. And we see that it is God who first sets the pattern. God had done what he set out to do. Creation was created. And it was not just good, it was very good. And with everything completed, he stops. That's what the word means, actually, to stop, to cease. So sometimes we think rest or Sabbath is about taking a nap or taking a holiday. But it's actually to stop what you were doing. God stops. God himself stops on the seventh day. It's got to be more than about physical rest, right? or even emotional or spiritual rest. God doesn't need to rest in that way. It's not about recharging or getting a clear mind, although it can include these things. But this is about 
a completed work that God is now able to stop and enjoy the creation with the creation. Us. You see, as the Bible picks up the seventh day and the Sabbath, we see that it points to freedom from slavery, to physical rest, to remembering God's salvation and provision, to releasing from debts, to restoring life. But ultimately, when we get to the book of Hebrews, we find that the Sabbath day of rest is coming that will never end. That all God's people can look forward to that day when we finally find rest forever in our home with God. I think one way to describe what it means to find this rest, to know what this rest is, is to be completely dependent upon God for life, for meaning, for needs, for value, for everything. Because in this life, what we do is we try to work to get all of those things. So work itself is not bad, but the way that we pour ourselves into trying to get these things for ourselves means that we don't trust God for those things. It might be status, it might be dignity, security, identity. It's not just about what our paid work. It's anything that we try to earn from ourselves rather than trust and depend on God. When we can't stop and put down whatever that work is and trust God, when we can't be satisfied with just enjoying God and being in his presence. Just take stock of the things and the tasks and the people in your life. Are there situations or people that you find that you just cannot say no to? Are there things that you feel you cannot stop doing? Do you feel that somehow if you don't continue to do X, you, your life, the world will fall apart? You see, here is the wonderful truth that as God sets boundaries around light and dark and sky and waters and land and sea, so God also sets boundaries on our time, the way that we expend our energy. And he knows how our hearts work, that we will pour ourselves into the things that we treasure most. And so what he does is he gives us this day or this way of living to force us to check our hearts in a way that will help to lead us back to God so that we can learn to trust and enjoy him. It is a holy day, a day set apart for worship. Now, this is something that I don't do perfectly at all. It is something that we often ignore in our lives. Sometimes we talk about it as though we need to care for ourselves, you know, that self-care, and that is a thing, or that we need to get enough hours of rest, and that is a thing, that we need to be able to um, 
you know, relationally spend time with each other, and that is a thing. But ultimately, what the Sabbath is pointing to, that seventh day of rest, is us learning what it is to be able to enjoy God. Because that is, that is what the whole of our lives actually is pointing to. And the reason that we can stop and enjoy God is that God has finished the work. God finished the work of creation and so he rested. God finished the work of salvation on the cross and so we can take that rest. God will finish what he has promised to create for us in the new heavens and the new earth and there we can find our ultimate rest in him, dependent and enjoying his presence. We need to learn how to set those limits in our lives that are going to help us to orient our lives to the worship of God. God is in control. He is in control over every part of creation because he created it by the power of his word. He sets his plans and purposes in motion and they are good and they bring about blessing and fruitfulness. And he completes what he sets out to do, not only in this act of creation, but in us. And so we can be confident of this. Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in us will carry on that work until it is completed when Jesus Christ returns. Amen.